Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America. Welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, where today we've got a lot of news. We're going to break it down. The COVID-19 hearings are going on in the Senate, and we have a special guest, Michael Fumento, a fantastic author and journalist whose work over the years has exposed the repeated alarmism in overly hyped predictions that our federal scientists have given us about past infectious disease, whether it's SARS, MERS, even AIDS. Uh, Michael Fomento is the premier expert on this. He's, uh, his book in 1990 on the AIDS crisis really exposed the alarmism of young scientists like Dr. Redfeld and Dr. Fauci, two of the faces today of the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, really important interview. He's going to walk you through what he thinks happens with COVID-19, why so many of the early models and predictions were so far off, and why he thinks the current death toll from COVID-19 is grossly exaggerated based on the CDC's interpretation and guidance to doctors in the field. Uh, this is a must-listen-to interview. You're going to be blown away by the factual grasp that Michael Fomento has on federal science and its uh, prognostication capabilities. And we're also, before we get to Michael, we're going to do a quick uh, overview of the top revelations in the Adam Schiff released Russian investigation transcripts. There are many big news articles big items that you need to understand and come up to speed on. We're going to get you all of those. But first, we're going to go to a commercial break here from our sponsors. When we get back, what you should know. We've read the transcripts, so you don't have to. What you should know from the Russia transcripts, the top headlines of the investigation of the investigators right after these commercial breaks. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as I always ask, if you like what we do at Just the News, if you like John Solomon Reports, please support our advertisers and sponsors. They make our journalism possible. They allow this podcast to go on each week. So please do that. That's a great way to help support the type of journalism, the accountability journalism that we do at Just the News. All right, I'm back. And I want to give you uh, the six most important revelations so far from the Russia Witness transcripts. Uh, these are the ones that Adam Schiff belatedly released last Thursday night after Rick Grinnell, the acting DNI for President Trump, threatened to release him himself. It turns out that um, Schiff had these for a long time and had not released them, probably because they contained a lot of exculpatory evidence. So I picked out six things. We've read all of the transcripts, thousands upon thousands of pages, so you don't have to. And we wanted to give you the six most important revelations from this 
uh, very, very important set of documents. They really bring to light uh, what we did and didn't know why we were going through the two and a half year scandal that is known as Russiagate. First, uh, the number one most important um, uh, revelation is that no matter who was uh, testifying as a witness, it turns out the FBI and the U.S. intelligence community had no evidence of collusion. Now, we know that uh, uh, now because Robert Mueller's investigation in April of 19, 2019, finally told us so. But it turns out that back in December of 2017, Adam Schiff and his team at the House Intelligence Committee and uh, Devin Nunez already knew that there was no evidence to, to support uh, this Russia collusion narrative that the media and the Democrats had whipped up time and time and time again. Witnesses were asked, are you aware of any conspiracy? And they would answer, no, we didn't know anything. We didn't have anything. No, we didn't have anything. Really a truly remarkable uh, set of witnesses, which means we went, unnecessarily went through another 18 months, maybe two years of this scandal when we knew the scandal wasn't true. I'm just going to read you one quote uh, that comes from James Clapper, the Obama Director of National Intelligence, and uh, it sums up what all of these 53 transcripts showed, uh, the, the top-line most important finding. Quote, I never saw any direct empirical evidence that the Trump campaign or someone in it was plotting slash conspiring with the Russians to meddle with the election. There you go. Don't need much more than that, but time and time again, whether it's Loretta Lynch, Mary McCord, Sally uh, Yates, all of the Justice Department officials, there was no evidence. And that's the most important revelation from these uh, transcripts. Uh, the Democrats, the intelligence community, the FBI, Robert Mueller, <clears throat> they all knew early on that this was a farce, and yet they allowed it to persist for two, two and a half more years. That's the headline we're all going to remember from these transcripts going forward. Now, that doesn't mean it's the only headline, though. There's lots of other ones. The number two most important revelation, I think, uh, was offered by former FBI Deputy Director Andy McCabe. Remember, he was fired by President Trump after he was caught lying to an investigation about media leaks. Uh, but in his testimony, he made an extraordinary revelation. And you have to remember where we were. If you remember, on July 31st, 2016, the FBI opened up Operation Crossfire Hurricane, the Russia collusion investigation, on allegations or fears that then Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos might be conspiring with Russians to obtain Hillary Clinton's hacked emails. That's a serious allegation. That would be a legitimate reason to open up an FBI investigation, except that McCabe undercut the predicate, the reason they opened up the investigation in his own testimony. Under questioning by Republicans, he admitted that after opening up on Papadopoulos, the FBI already knew that Papadopoulos didn't have any contact with Moscow. Let me just read you the money quote. Papadopoulos' comment didn't particularly indicate that he was the person that had that was interacting with the Russians. Okay, let me get this straight. The FBI opened up an investigation saying that we think George Papadopoulos is colluding with Russians to steal Hillary Clinton's emails, and they have no evidence he's talking to the Russians. It even has contacts with the Russians. Anyone see a problem with that? I know I do. So that's the second, I think, and most powerful uh, uh, revelation in there. The predicate that started this whole thing was based on a tip about a guy who didn't have any Russian contacts. How, why did we investigate this? Well, uh, that's a question that we're going to have to ask. Now, the number three most important revelation of documents, something I wrote about yesterday on justthenews.com. If you go to the homepage, you'll see it there right now. And that is from 
former Hillary Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. In his testimony, he came. Uh, he was called back a second time after it was learned that the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign had paid for the Steele dossier. You know that dossier, the one that was used for the FISA warrant, the bogus FISA warrant. Well, he was called back in December of 17 to ask, what up? Why didn't you mention this whole uh, arrangement between the DNC, Perkins Coie, the law firm, and the Hillary Clinton campaign? And he acknowledged, he found out belatedly, that DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign split the cost for the Christopher Steele dossier in research um, and then ran the billing through uh, Perkins Coie, the DNC and campaign's lawyers. But the more important revelation that John Podesta made in his testimony was that Hillary Clinton herself, as well as he, the campaign chairman, were both aware that the Clinton campaign and the DNC had a joint operation that had purchased opposition research and specifically was looking into getting dirt on Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. I'm going to read you the money quote from Podesta's transcript because this is the first known time that we uh, now know that the Hillary Clinton senior leadership as well as the candidate herself, knew that there was a dossier being compiled on Donald Trump that they were paying for, that they were buying. Quote, this is John Podesta speaking about Heather Clinton. Quote, I think she was. She knew that we had and we had an opposition research staff in-house. We, the campaign, directly purchased some opposition research. And she knew, I think in general terms, that we were trying to figure out, what, which was not easy, what Mr. Trump's financial relationships were, what his relationships might be to Russia, other than uh, and other former Soviet Union actors that you know, but I don't think I don't think she knew who the vendors were. Okay, so she may not have known about Christopher Steele by name or Fusion GPS and Glenn Simpson by name, but she knew there was a dirt digging operation on Donald Trump and Russia that resulted in this whole fiasco that we now call Russia Gate. Uh, that's significant for another reason. Christopher Steele himself testified, as I told you on this podcast a few weeks ago, in a London lawsuit just a few weeks ago that he was told Hillary Clinton was in the know about his dossier. So Hillary Clinton was in the know about what turned out to be some of the worst and most erroneous political opposition research in history, one that had great consequences because it forced the FBI to launch a two-year investigation that came up empty. But John Podesta's uh, admission, that's a big deal. And in my mind, it's the third most important revelation in these documents. The fourth one is one that goes directly to James Clapper. Now, we quoted him earlier as I read to you his comment that he, like any most of the other intelligence and FBI officials at the time, knew of no direct evidence that would tie President Trump to a conspiracy to hack uh, Hillary Clinton's emails or to collude with Russia in any way to try to shape or influence or hijack the 2016 election. But there is testimony that Clapper gave on another front that's now being called into question by, uh, by very important uh, new evidence in, in other places. So it's important to note that Clapper testified, he was asked, did you brief President Obama about any of the conversations that uh, Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn had with the Russian ambassador? And he answered, quote, no. Pretty straightforward answer, not much ambiguity about it. Well, guess what? We now know from uh, testimony given by James Comey and from a book by Andrew McCabe, that that may not be true. Certainly, they have a very different um, uh, testimony. James Comey testified in the first week of January, uh, Clapper briefed the president and the vice president, that means Joe Biden, and then President Obama's senior team about what we had found. And he, he talks specifically about verbally briefing uh, uh, the president about the Mike Flynn intercept. 
Similarly, uh, Andrew McCabe in his 2019 book, The Threat, uh, uh, says that it was shared with Comey. Comey shared it with the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, and Clapper verbally briefed it to President Obama. All right, so James Clapper's testimony, James Comey's testimony, Andrew McCabe's account, they don't add up. Somebody's not telling the truth. Somebody's not accurate. And that's why Devin Nunez, the former House Intelligence Committee chairman, Republican defender of President Trump, says he's made a criminal referral on many people concerning their testimony because he simply doesn't believe it. Too many conflicts, too many contradictions. And uh, that could be some of the stuff that we think uh, the uh, investigative team led by John Durham may be looking at. All right, the fifth most important revelation, I think, comes from CrowdStrike. That is a company that was run by a former FBI official, Sean Henry, uh, that was brought in by the DNC after its emails were hacked, or they suspected their emails were hacked. And what's most striking about CrowdStrike's testimony is for the last few years, we've heard there was irrefutable, undeniable, absolute certain evidence that the Russians not only hacked the DNC servers, but that they directly took out all uh, ex, what they call exfiltrated, stole uh, all of the uh, emails, including the famous ones from John Podesta that were leaked uh, to WikiLeaks. But here's what really CrowdStrike said. It's not quite the same. So Mr. Henry testified that they thought 70 gigabytes of data had been taken from the network. But when he was asked, could he say it unequivocally? Was the evidence certain? Here's what he said. I can't say that based on uh, what they knew. What could he say? Well, what he said was, uh, believe it or not, that uh, they had indications that Russians had exfiltrated, stole, taken the um, uh, emails off, but that they couldn't say unequivocally whether or not it was exfiltrated out of the DNC from what you know. I can't say that, he said. It's just remarkable to hear this. It was indications, not direct evidence. Yet when you read what was going on uh, time and time again, uh, we, we hear that it was hard concrete. I'm going to give you the direct quote from, uh, I'm just going through the transcript here to find it for you, the direct quote from Sean Henry. There is evidence of exfiltration, not conclusive, but indicators of exfiltration off the DNC server. Evidence, not conclusive, indicators. Not the same solid evidence that we've been led to believe. So I think that's the fifth most important revelation in this um, uh, long saga and, and then these thousands of pages of um, uh, testimony transcripts. Finally, my last one is a lawyer by the name of Michael Sussman. You're going to get to know his name a lot more in the next weeks because I think a lot more is going to come out about the DNC's role in fanning, perpetrating, spreading the uh, false Russia collusion narrative to all the law enforcement agencies. So Sussman works for the uh, law firm Perkins Coie. That's the law firm that hired Steele and Fusion GPS to do the dossier. Uh, he's also a lawyer for uh, other clients. And he it, it disclosed in his testimony under questioning from the great Cash Patel, the Republican interrogator, investigator, that in February of 2017, he went to the CIA and provided some dirt on Donald Trump and his ties to Russia, the Trump Organization's ties to Russia, uh, from a client. He doesn't specify the client. He doesn't specify the dirt. Uh, but it's an extraordinary admission that a lawyer for the DNC, a private lawyer at Perkins Coie, bothered to go to the CIA to try to drop uh, evidence of Russia collusion on the agency. Why is that significant? By that time, February 2017, the FBI was pretty certain already that the Steele dossier information was bunk, Russian disinformation. We now know from all of the classified evidence from Rick Grinnell and Attorney General Barr 
that they had interviewed Steele subsource. He had denied a lot of stuff that had been attributed to him. They had warnings that uh, the Russians may have been feeding Steele disinformation to influence the campaign. So as the Steele FBI part of the investigation was falling apart, where does the DNC connected lawyer go? He goes to the CIA, try to get them going. Now, what's remarkable about that is that it's not the CIA's job to investigate or look at Americans. Their job is to look solely at foreign threats. That's the role of the CIA. In fact, the CIA is not supposed to target Americans. So it's an extraordinary end run in many ways uh, that this evidence would go around the FBI to the CIA. Uh, we don't know more about it, but I'm sure congressional committees and investigators and the investigation of the investigators are going to get to the bottom of it. Uh, and that'll be part of the work of John Durham, the special prosecutor named by Bill Barr. All right, enough on Russia today. I think you got the top six. You know what we we know from the transcripts and why it's important. We're going to go to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, an extraordinary interview with an expert who really knows, I mean really knows, about scientific alarmism and the federal science community, the NIH, the CDC, all that's wrong uh, uh, with our federal science and the response to COVID-19 from Michael Fomento, best-selling author, great investigative journalist. You're going to want to hear what he has to say. He put he separates fact from fiction and all that we know about the federal science alarmism, federal science concern about infectious diseases. Right after the commercial break, that'll be our next interview. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And it is my distinct honor to uh, have joining us today Michael Fomento, the great journalist, the great author, uh, who's done really extensive research over the years on federal science and alarmism and, um, and just the overall capabilities of our CDC and our NIH, all those agencies that we've been hearing a lot about in the coronavirus. Michael, welcome to John Solomon Reports. Thank you very much. Um, you've done so much work going all the way back to the early 1990s, kind of looking at the federal scientists that today are the face of the coronavirus, Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Redfield. And I wanted to see if you could start off um, uh, by just giving us an overview of some of the work you did early on back in the AIDS crisis, just help people understand uh, how early on you were monitoring these agencies and their work. Well, I first entered this this milieu, if you will, back in 1987 with a uh, a piece that got international attention, um, internationally translated all over the world, basically pointing out that it was nonsense that AIDS had suddenly, as as uh, the headlines were putting it, the disease of them has now suddenly become the disease of us. Uh, AIDS never shifted. It was always a disease, essentially, of gay men, of intravenous drug abusers, and initially people who received blood products, either transfusions or hemophiliacs. The, those last two groups 
dropped out pretty quickly. So AIDS never shifted, and yet the public opinion, uh, the media, the, the public health services, they all did shift. They were all desperate to convince us that, to use another expression, AIDS doesn't discriminate, or now it's everyone's disease. Are, are you hearing echoes of that now with COVID-19, in which we are told that a disease that overwhelmingly discriminates against not just kind of the elderly people, but really old people, um, you know, very often 80 and above, who have several what are called comorbid conditions. It's almost entirely a disease of those people, and yet we're being told, quote, we are all in this together, end quote. It's really bringing back flashbacks of AIDS, again, going back to 1987. The um, your your book uh, has some really extraordinary um, episodes, the one uh, that really describe the sort of alarmism. And I think because so many years have passed, many people may have forgotten some of the early alarmism, some of the predictions that that are are allegedly best scientists in the world were making. One of them was Mr. Uh, was Dr. Redfield, who's at the CDC now. He runs the CDC during the middle of this coronavirus. He um, I made a prediction according to your book that back in the early 1990s that that as uh, the chance of getting AIDS uh, between a male and a, a female who are having sex could be 50% per contact. That didn't turn out to be true, did it? No, and you know, the thing is, wasn't it obvious, even at the time it was reported? It, it would be like, um, gee, I don't know, uh, somebody tells you that there's a hurricane outside, and you look outside the window, and, and there's not even a, a drizzle. That's how obvious this was. And yet, you know, newspapers and magazines and everybody else picked it up all over the world. And basically, nobody gave Redfield problems already, except for, for years truly. And I don't think it's coincidence that one day that man, that totally irresponsible guy, who, by the way, got 24 pages in my book. It wasn't that big of a book, but Redfield was, was in 24 different pages. That guy later was promoted to, to the head of the Centers for Disease Control. That's how he got promoted. He got promoted through being alarmist, through being incompetent, ineptitude. That's, that's basically how you move up the, the ladder in today's public health system, both within and without the United States. Well, I want to take another one from your book because it was another one that I uh, it really caught my attention. And I forgot, you know, so many years have passed that people forget about the uh, these predictions. But back in 1983, there was a scientist who wrote a paper for JAMA, the Journal of American Medicine, probably the most prestigious medical journal in America, certainly one of them. And that, that particular uh, scientist predicted that AIDS could be transmittable just through routine close contact as within a family household, meaning two people in the house, one sneezes, maybe the other one gets AIDS. Tell us who that scientist was and where he is today. You may have heard of him. His name is Anthony Fauci. I think we've heard of him. Anthony Fauci, as in the Anthony Fauci, who the very next year, within months, was promoted to be the head of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, a position he holds to this day. Again, this is the reward of the public health service 
reward people who are grotesquely wrong so long as they are grotesquely wrong in the right direction. That is alarmism, scaring the crap out of innocent human beings. The um, I talked to a an American policymaker the other day who um, has been in the middle of the coronavirus efforts and expressed some of the frustration of how often in the course of the last three months the CDC NIH advice has flip-flopped around. And he said, this person said to me, there are only two people in America that can be right 30% of the time and still get parades thrown for them. One's a weatherman, the other is a, a, a federal scientist. Um, why is it, uh, do you think, that that predictions and, and even uh, advice so rapidly changed in the coronavirus as it did in the AIDS crisis two, three decades ago, why are scientists so far off and why is it so frustrating to American policymakers when, when we have to flip-flop? Because the rewards really are all in one direction. Um, you look at uh, the most famous alarmist of this, of the current crisis, is a, a British professor named Neil Ferguson. Uh, Ferguson came out with his model showing as many as 2.2 million American deaths and 550,000 British deaths. But if we did everything just right, we can knock those American deaths down to only 1.1 million. But we have to do everything just right to get a number that low. Well, of course, the American epidemic peaked weeks ago at about 60,000 cases. So, yeah, ultimately... Depending on the definition you use, we're going to end up with maybe 100 to 120,000 deaths. This guy said minimum was 1.2 million. Now, it helps to know that Ferguson, decades earlier, also predicted as many as 50,000 deaths from mad cow disease. There were about 200. And he predicted, as I recall, um, a couple of million deaths maybe, from avian flu, and there were 400. So you see a pattern forming here. They make these outrageous predictions, whether it's Redfield or Fauci or Ferguson, and I could just go down a list of 20 different people, and they make them year after year, decade after decade. Not only do they not get punished, they're not forced to resign they're not um, kept out of high positions. They are promoted to the very highest positions simply because they were alarmist, because they were so wrong. It's, it's, it's quite perverse. Now, Elon Musk didn't get to where he is by, by being wrong all the time, and, and Bill Gates didn't for that matter. But in public health, it's, it's quite the opposite. Now, when people hear you talk, they might think that you're, you know, under uh, or minimizing the the coronavirus. Obviously, it's been a big deal, one of the, one of the worst outbreaks we've had in many years. But your your point is not not that the severity of it, but the the sort of the whipsaw nature of these productions um, our predictions have made policymakers take extreme actions only to find out that the predictions were wrong. And that's that's really your focal point. You're not. You're not trying to under, you know, undermine the people who died or, or make light of the fact. It's more of the ability of policymakers to get accurate uh, predictions, correct? Yeah, I, th I think that honesty is the best policy. I mean, call me crazy. Um, I think accuracy is the best policy. That is not their policy. Their policy is to come up with 
the very highest figures that can possibly be justified and then multiply by 10. And I don't think that's compassionate. You know, here's another, speaking of Ferguson, here's what his mad cow disease model, his computer model actually said. It said anywhere between 50 deaths and 50,000 deaths. Now, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. What kind of a model? What good is a model that goes 50 to 50,000, somewhere in between there? Well, the good is that Ferguson knew what all these guys knew, that the headlines aren't going to state new model shows anywhere between 50 to 50,000 deaths. It will be new model shows as many as. This is the game they always play. They know how the media is going to treat it. They're only going to go with that top range. The, um, one of the things that um, follows these predictions, follows these alarmism, is money, right? Uh, these agencies get billions upon billions of dollars to grow their bureaucracy with each one of these passing crises. And then despite that money, we find out that, you know, in heading into this pandemic, we had uh, the the bureaucrats who had gotten all this money, hadn't really studied much on coronavirus since the last outbreak, hadn't re, uh, resupplied the ventilator masks that, that our medical workers needed from the stockpile, and uh, had ignored several uh, warnings or uh, opportunities to test treatments that could be ready for the next coronavirus uh, outbreak. Talk a little bit about the failures that you see specifically with Redfield's leadership at the CDC that relate to this pandemic today? Well, the biggest, and actually one of the two biggest failures in the entire history of the CDC was that first the CDC said, we're not going to use the World Health Organization test. Now, those tests were not developed in China or you know some suspect country. Those tests were developed in Germany, which is known for you know quality engineering the world over. But the CDC said, no, 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 we're not going to use the German test. We're going to design our own. Okay, fine. Well, that automatically meant a a two-week delay right there. We're rejecting WHO. We're going to make our own. Boom. We're already two two weeks late into the game. But then the CDC tests didn't work. They were contaminated. So that led to an additional delay of several weeks. So while other countries, you know, third world countries had been testing for five weeks, uh, well, they had been testing for five weeks before they began testing in the United States. That was completely the CDC's fault. Who is the head of CDC? Robert Redfield. Uh, Redfield was in the army just like me, Okay. And when you're in the Army, whether a non-com, a sergeant like me, or a colonel like Redfield, you take responsibility for everything that happens underneath you. A guy underneath you gets drunk and beats his wife, and it's your fault. Well, this guy is the head of the Centers for Disease Control. He's former military, and nobody out there has tried to blame Redfield for the testing fiasco. He's not completely off the hook. It's amazing. And why do you think that is? Is it the American sentiment that when we're we're scared by an outbreak like this, that we want to give the benefit of the doubt to these guys? Is it because they have better PR machines? Is it because policymakers don't understand um, the magnitude of these failures? What 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 do you make of how people who make these sort of mistakes or these bad predictions 
uh, move on unscathed. Well, again, the rewarded at the time, he, I mean, here's always the pattern. When they make the bad predictions, they're hailed as heroes, as, as indeed Ferguson was. Ferguson is going to save the world from, being, from, from the zombie apocalypse. All right, well, it turns out Ferguson was a little bit high, you know, as he has always been high throughout his entire career, but his heart was in the right place, you see, because you need to kind of exaggerate a bit to get people to do the right thing. That is the attitude. Nobody ever sees the downside of the exaggeration. So Ferguson got away with it with mad cow disease, Ferguson got away with it with avian flu, and there was every reason to think, yeah, he's going to get away with it with uh, COVID-19 as well. Now, one funny little thing happened to Ferguson along the way. Um, A bit humorous, but whatever. Ferguson himself got COVID-19. Then Ferguson was caught with a friend's wife at his place during his quarantine. And we're talking a total 100% hypocrite. He drives not only the United Kingdom, but pretty much the the entire world into locking down and, and, you know, basically house arrest. And he refuses to go again. He refuses to go along with basically the rules that he urged, the rules that that he got laid down um, to commit adultery with a friend's wife. So that is why he was forced to resign from the, uh, the British task force. It had nothing to do with being wrong. It's just, you know, he had to commit adultery. The, uh, the, uh, it, is, it is eye-opening, and we had a big version of that story on our, on our website, justthenews.com, because uh, it really struck us, too, that the, you know, we've seen, we've seen Fauci not wear a mask. We've seen Fauci uh, not ab- abide by social distancing at these uh, briefings. And uh, for many of our readers, it looks like uh, do what we say, not what we do is the, the operating rule of some of these researchers. Um, when, you, when you look out now, I know a lot of Americans want to learn from what we've just been through. What do you think will be the biggest lessons? How can America go, going forward be better prepared for pandemics and viruses and you know, the inevitable evolution of, of diseases that come from animals, zoonotics, and, and eventually get to humans? We've been dealing with it for a century, but what are the lessons that we should learn from this? Well, as far as the models go, we just need to ignore them. I'm, I mean, I've looked at countless models here for COVID. I looked at Oh, my gosh. The last uh, outbreak of anything we had is what I call Ebola, too. It was the second um, Ebola hysteria that we've been through. And there, the World Health Organization used a sophisticated computer model to find 1.4 million Ebola deaths out of just two African countries. The total number was 800. <laughs> and you see this pattern? You know, we've talked now COVID, we've talked Ebola, we've talked mad cow, we've talked avian flu, we've talked uh, HIV AIDS. It happens with each and every outbreak. The models are always wrong. My only suggestion has to be ignore the models. 
Instead, there is something out there called Farr's Law, which is, is a kind of model. It just predates computers. It goes back to 1840. And Farr's Law dictates that any epidemic, and when I say any, I mean any epidemic, smallpox, cholera, HIV, COVID, it starts out at a very steep increase, not actually exponentially. That, that term is just nonsense. You hear it over and over, and it's always nonsense. They're never exponential. But it starts out at a steep rate, and then over time, it slows, and you see the curve go curve to the right, and then it peaks, and then it declines. And what's more or less a symmetrical bell curve, more or less. Uh, it's been going on since 1840. It, of course, was going on way before 1840. It's been going on through human history. It was just basically enunciated in 1840. That was eight years before there was any public health service anywhere on Earth. What does it tell you? It tells you epidemics tend to do the same thing forever, whether, again, it's COVID or HIV or you know swine flu or blah, or blah, blah, blah. You can look at Farr's law, you can look at the curve of the cases to pretty much tell you what's going to happen with the epidemic. So throw out your computer models and, and, you know, what have you, and just look at Farr's law. That tells you where the epidemic is going to go. As far as the other stuff goes, yeah, but these people have not used the money to, uh, well, for example, SARS. SARS was, you know, yet another one that was supposed to kill maybe millions of people worldwide, millions. It killed 744 before it simply disappeared. So there's another one for you. But um, after SARS, they could have said, you know, we're going to have another coronavirus uh, epidemic come along. And we've never had a vaccine for a coronavirus. Maybe even though SARS appears to be gone, and it was gone, maybe we should try to come up with a coronavirus vaccine anyway just to see if we can do it. You think that might have occurred to them? And this is over a decade ago. And now, I mean, they had other other purposes for their money. Don't ask me what other purposes, you know, because I can't tell you. But they had something better to do then experimentally come up with the first coronavirus vaccine. What does that mean? It means all these people assuring you that in 18 months, oh, we'll definitely have a COVID-19 vaccine. They have no idea because we've never had a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm not saying we won't, but I'll tell you this, we've been working on a decent malaria vaccine for decades. There is none. We have been working on a useful dengue vaccine for decades. There is none. There is no guarantee we're going to have a COVID-19 vaccine in 18 months. So what, what uh, as you look out and given the history of what uh, you, you've seen with all of the pandemics and epidemics of the past, um, what does our future look like? If you had to predict right now, based on all of your expert knowledge, what, what hen, uh, when do Americans feel like they've passed this uh, this crisis. Well, I've got a death chart in front of me right now. Um, you know, I don't get my my facts from the New York Times or the Washington Post, um, or you know, or even from YouTube. Although it seems lately, 
doctors on YouTube have been more accurate than what you get from the Washington Post and the New York Times. I, I go to the data directly, and what it shows is that U.S. deaths peaked. I'm putting my little cursor on it right now. They peaked on April 21st. And that was quite a while ago. That was, you know, what, seven Three weeks, weeks ago. ago. Has, hasn't gone down dramatically. But part of the reason it hasn't gone down dramatically is the CDC keeps expanding the definition of what is a COVID-19 death. And this is going to surprise you know some of your listeners, some it won't. But you, you might think that to die of COVID-19, you would actually have to have COVID-19 in your system. You would be wrong. The <laughs> CDC has mandated. In fact, they've almost, yeah, they've mandated. That's going beyond recommended or anything like that. That if a person more or less looks like they may have died of COVID, you are supposed to put COVID down on the death certificate. Now, mind you, the, the, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, the COVID epidemic was running at the same time as the annual flu epidemic. Right. How do you look at a corpse and, and go, well, that one's COVID and that one's flu, and, and that's definitely COVID and that's definitely – you can't. So when the CDC says lean in the direction of COVID, it means a lot of people who died of flu have been designated COVID deaths. Wow. And people who died of heart attacks have been designated COVID. And people who died of asthma and uh, diabetes. All, a lot of these people are being listed as COVID deaths when a test would show that they never had COVID in their system. Wow. So That's a scary thought. You know, I'm tell, I can tell you what the death data are, the official CDC death data, but it could be overstated by as much as 90%. We have evidence on that from Italy, where they went back and they looked at COVID death certificates. And then they looked to see, what did this person really die of? You know, was it COVID? Did they even have a, a COVID diagnosis? Was it that they had a COVID diagnosis? But, you know, they had three heart attacks before the COVID diagnosis, and then they died of a heart attack. They looked at these different things, and what they found was only 12% of COVID deaths were directly attributable to COVID, which is to say 88% were, were basically bogus. So wow. when you hear the U.S. has just, has just hit 80,000 COVID deaths, really it may be that we've only hit about 10,000 COVID deaths, which, by the way, you know, perspective is so important here. We've never had a seasonal flu that only killed 10,000 people. This, right. You know, this is still very much, this is very much in seasonal flu, flu category uh, as far as deaths go. Well, keep in mind that uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, while saying things publicly that this was going to be 10x the seasonal flu, actually wrote a study uh, for his learned colleagues in, in, one, of the law, uh, in one of the medical journals in, that was published in late March, Saying that this probably would end up right around a bad uh, seasonal flu. So, uh, even in within his own body of work, he had two very vastly different predictions. One, one uh, much more similar to yours just now, and the other in the in the higher range that uh, the CDC and others have thrown around. I think it's some, that's one of the reasons why people get so frustrated when they when they watch this or try to get a forecast for the weather. 
Well, Michael, we are so pleased that you joined us. We're so glad that you wrote for us. This is a very important story about the CDC being on the hot seat and why. And we hope to have you back soon on uh, uh, at Just the News and on John Solomon Reports. It would be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for your good work. All right, folks, we'll be right back after the commercial break to wrap things up for today. Oh, man, where did the time go? We're done with another edition of John Solomon Reports, and I feel like I just got started. Well, that's okay. I hope you like Michael Fomento. I, uh, his in interview really is insightful. His book from 1990 uh, really d- drives into some of the alarmism and inaccuracies that were foisted upon the American public during the early AIDS crisis. Um, and it's a good reminder to all of us that we, as we're going through this evolving history of COVID-19, serious as it is, that the final statistics, the final concerns, the final strategies are going to be very different than when we were first told. We've seen some of that already with flip-flops on recommendations like face masks and on, on wildly different models that made terrible predictions. And in some of our own federal science experts and British science experts, not even following the advice they were imposing upon us. We'll do that. And now you also have our top six reasons or top six revelations that came out of the Russia transcripts released by Adam Schiff. I hope that was helpful. We're going to be back on Thursday, and I'm going to leave you with a question to think about because it will set up Thursday's interview and information, uh, I hope, well. If we now know that much of what we were told about the Russia collusion investigation was wrong, hyped, uh, knowingly and mis- misleading, then we have to ask ourselves if the same perpetrators, people like Adam Schiff and some of these NSC staffers, were involved in both uh, scandals. Is it possible that we got a bad story on the Ukraine scandal as well? Well, I'm going to have a major revelation on that about some witness testimony and some things you should know about in our next podcast. So come back on Thursday. You're not going to want to miss this. There is some new evidence emerging in the Ukraine scandal. That calls into question what we were told during the impeachment proceedings led by, you got it, Adam Schiff. Until Thursday, be safe, enjoy your time with your family, stay healthy, and keep reading justthenews.com for the latest breaking news and investigative stories from our great team. We'll talk to you Thursday.